Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome everyone, thank you for joining us today. My name is Lindsay Holmes, I'm the Senior Wellness Editor at HuffPost, and I'm also today's moderator. Our panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Paul Johnson, uh, the President of Wellesley College, Michelle Williams, Dean of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Stephanie Pinder um, Amaker, excuse me, Director of, of the College Mental Health Program at McLean Hospital, and Allison Malman, Executive Director and Founder of Active Minds. This event is being presented jointly with HuffPost. It's also part of the Dr. Lawrence H. and Roberta Cohn forums, and we're pleased to have the Cohn family in our audience today. We're streaming live on the websites of the forum and HuffPost, and we are also streaming on Facebook. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. Uh, so we're just gonna get started. Uh, college life can be among the most rewarding and challenging time periods in a young person's life. Increasingly, we are seeing students in need of mental health care and um, support for their well-being. According to a 2017 American College Health Association report, 39% of students reported feeling so depressed that they were having trouble functioning. 61% say they experienced overwhelming anxiety in the last 12 months. In addition, the Center for Collegiate Mental Health says that the number of students using counseling centers increased by approximately 30% on average from 2009 to 2015. To give us some idea of what students are facing, let's take a look um, at a clip from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Everybody's super excited to go to college, and of course I was as well. But I had no idea that transition from high school to college would be so difficult. I think the first sign for me was I was super tired. I was just so tired. Every night, every day, I just wanted to sleep. Things got more hectic, I got more anxious and depressed being in a new place. One night, I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be just in this world anymore. There was one day when I went back to my apartment that I really felt like I was going to do something bad to myself. And so I contacted a behavioral center and I ended up going there for two days. Going to the behavioral center ended up being a positive experience for me because that's when I started going on medication. Going to counseling kind of helped me understand why I was cutting and what else I could be doing, you know, instead of self-harming. I absolutely think that the combination of therapy and medication can be really, really good. You don't have to be a completely new person just because you go to college. Like the things and the baggage that you had in high school, they might come with you to college and that's totally okay. Like you don't have to be the perfect person. There is a science behind depression um, and it's not just something that you know you make up in your head, it's very real.
Paula, my first question is for you. You and your fellow college presidents have spoken about the need for um, mental health support on campus. What are today's colleges facing when it comes to addressing that need? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a significant issue for us. And as you see in the numbers that you started out with, and I think through the video, um, we face a lot of challenges on our campus with a student population who's experiencing very high numbers of depression and anxiety. And this starts in high school. Um, and we really haven't developed yet the systems that we need to face this. So I like to think about our students in a number of categories. You know, there's the students who today come to us with known diagnoses. And in many ways, this is wonderful. These are students who might not have been able to come to us in the past, already on medication, need to have follow-up services. There are then students, you know, this is a vulnerable time of life where certain diagnoses become apparent. Um, students face life crises and then need treatment, so there's another group of students. And then a large group who are facing what is a tumultuous time of life. College years are times of change, and they're dealing with the stress, um, the pressures of that living away from home if they're going to a residential college. And as I said, our systems just haven't caught up. And there also hasn't really been the base of evidence that's been developed. So for us, the question is, how do we meet the needs of our students, not a one-size-fits-all? And how do we also create a culture of health and wellness and prevention on our campuses? Yeah, absolutely. And Michelle, what's the role of public health in this discussion? Well, you know, I just love the way Paula just ended the response to your question. I think what really is important here is identifying ways to support and enable the students on college campus as they are making this very important life transition from being home with parents to becoming more independent on our college campus. And I think the approach through a public health lens would promote health and wellness while creating campus, um, the environment, as really a bedrock for prevention and health promotion. Um, you know, when you think about it, we're obligated to be sure that we are ensuring the wellness and full development of the next generation of leaders. And the students on college campuses are exactly that. They deserve to have access to the health promoting um, um, uh, interventions that we know work to address their stress, the stresses and strains of this transition. We know, for example, that while the students are making transition towards independence, their um, investment, empowering them to invest in a life course of health and wellness, making good choices around their sleeping habits, their dietary habits, um, assuring that there's an opportunity for them to engage in creating and supporting social networks that will help navigate this transition in life are all components, I think, that looking at this transition to college life um, is a way for promoting whole, a holistic wellness approach for them. Yeah. Stephanie, you run a college mental health program, and then you also work with groups such as the World Health Organization and the Jed Foundation. What have you found personally when it comes to collegiate mental health? Okay, so We'll start internationally from the World Health Organization perspective. The World Health Organization has been running an international college survey for several years. And um, this survey has been assessing the mental health functioning of first year students coming into school, entering 
in 10 countries around the world, including the United States. And this survey is really important because it's giving us a profile of who's actually coming to our campuses along the three groups that Paula referred to earlier. And um, the International College Survey is finding that of incoming first year students, 31%, nearly a third of those students are coming to school with identified meeting criteria for mental disorders like in the realm of anxiety disorders, mood disorders, and substance use disorders. So that's important population prevalence data that we can continue to track. But the next wave of this work, which is really important, is that we're now going back into those same institutions and starting to embed interventions. So these are inexpensive, low-cost interventions like, say, um, internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. And we're introducing those interventions into the same campuses, conducting pre and post surveys, and beginning to find out for whom are these interventions most effective? And that's a very important step because it's gonna take us to that next phase of beginning to figure out how do we do a better job of first identifying the students as they walk in the door who need additional supports and services, and how do we get to the students who might be in that third category who don't yet have identified um, mental health illnesses, and we're hoping that they don't get to that level. How do we meet those students where they are and intervene effectively? And then just close, um, finally, closer to home. So we started out internationally, moving a little bit closer to the college mental health program. We're finding the same thing. We're a community-based, a hospital-based college mental health program. And when we track our student utilization data, we are seeing um, in incredible increases. We're seeing a rise in students seeking treatment at higher levels of care. So not just outpatients, but at inpatient levels of care, day partial levels of care, in residential treatment and outpatients. Those numbers have tripled and in some cases, um, have doubled and in some cases tripled since the inception of our um, program nearly a decade ago. And then the final piece of this is because when we first started working with college students um, in the regionally and now nationally, we were seeing students from approximately 100 different colleges and universities around the country. That number of institutions has now doubled. Each year, we see students <coughs> from over 200 different colleges and universities. And therein lies sort of the third trend that we're seeing that I think is actually very interesting and quite encouraging. Um, we deliver treatment to college students, but we also engage colleges and universities. They come to us and we partner and we do research studies like the World Health Organization study together <laughs> and so forth. Um, but in the past three years, I'd say 80% of colleges and universities who have engaged us, who have said, can you help us attack this problem or get a better understanding about how to address these needs? 80% of those requests have come specifically um, to seek help addressing the mental health needs of an increasingly diverse student body. So how do we get better at addressing, identifying and addressing the mental health needs of students who might carry marginalized identities like students of color or LGBTQ students and so forth. So those are some of the trends that we're seeing. Yeah. Allison, your organization works with students to advocate for more um, mental health 
needs, support for those mental health needs on campus. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so I started and run an organization called Active Minds, and we are uh, 15 years old. And in our 15 years, um, Active Minds has really worked to develop uh, and mobilize a generation who is uh, talking about mental health differently than previous generations and organizing themselves um, to promote general mental health and wellness at their schools. Um, what we're finding is that young adults aren't afraid to talk about these issues anymore, but they haven't really been given the right words to use. Um, and so through the, our 15 year history plus, we've developed uh, more than 450 chapters on college and university and high school campuses across the country, uh, run by 15,000 students who have uh, volunteered to make Active Minds their extracurricular activity. Many say that they major in Active Minds. I have to remind them that they're there for school first. Um, but they're so passionate about this. And these are students who themselves have struggled with mental health issues and, and been diagnosed or not who've had friends or family who have um, struggled with mental health issues, who have lost loved ones to suicide, um, and students who don't have a personal tie to mental health and recognize, though, that this is an important issue uh, and they want to be an ally. Uh, and so we're really seeing a new, uh, new generation emerge. And with that, we as an organization have been able to um, broadcast their voices and learn from them. And, and what we're learning from students uh, across the board, as we're, we've already heard today, is that um, students are really, um, they're talking with each other. They are um, really mobilized and, and excited to be in this cause. Um, and, and the fact is, um, in order to look at the first line of defense, we have to look at students. Two-thirds of students who feel suicidal tell a friend before they tell anybody else. Um, and so we know when, when campuses are doing this right, um, they are empowering students to speak openly about mental health issues, learn more themselves, um, and know what to do and say to friends about whom they may be worrying, um, worried. And, and that means taking their hand and walking them over to the counseling center and saying, can I call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number with you, or can I text the crisis text line number with you? Um, can I sit in the counseling center um, waiting room while you're there? Um, really recognizing what it means to be a friend, um, to, to give quality clinical care um, to the counseling center at the school or community resources, um, such, such as what uh, the program that's at McLean, uh, but recognizing that students have a role to play um, with each other. Um, and I think one of the really important pieces where this really comes from is this idea that um, we don't know why students are drawn to this. And, and maybe it's students who are coming onto campus who in generations past wouldn't have made it. Um, and maybe it's students who are first starting to struggle. Uh, but the fact is that it's largely the first time they're experiencing this when they're in school. And we need to create a culture on our campuses where students know that it's not their fault, that um, there's help available, there is hope, um, that what you're going through is, is kind of normal. Other people have gone through this too. And um, here are the great resources to reach out for help. And you don't have to be in a, in a crisis to go to a counseling center. We go to the doctor every year for a checkup. We go to the doctor to tell us if we have strep or the flu. We can go talk to somebody to tell us what's going on and help us work through those coping skills. So if we can, as we can create a public health approach um, and a, camp, a campus and culture um, that embraces mental health and that largely in, involves students in the organizing and the planning, we can create a campus where students can thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously these issues are incredibly complex and there's no one solution to this problem. Um, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into what these issues mean and then also how we can help create healthy campus environments for students. Um, first, we're going to take a look at a clip from Active Minds about a young woman named Hannah. She lost both her brother and her father to suicide. And then when she got into college, she too experienced mental health issues. So let's hear what she has to say in the clip. I think we still have a long way to go on campuses. I think that bringing active minds to campuses is definitely putting the foot in the door and it's making the conversation begin. 
but I also think that so many people are still stigmatizing it and still putting it off as, oh, well, I don't have a problem, so it doesn't matter. And I think that by changing the atmosphere on college campuses to make it more accepting, it'll slowly start to make people realize that it's okay and that help isn't a sign of weakness and reaching out is not you giving up and being vulnerable, it's you being strong enough to admit, I'm having a tough time and I need help. So I, getting the help that I needed really changed my life, honestly. Um, and I want other people to be able to see that it's okay to reach out for help and see that there is hope, whether it's the darkest of days, I feel that, I've been there. But there is always going to be a brighter day. And I think Active Minds does a good job of helping people see that there is a brighter side to things. Allison, I want to go back to you for a minute. Hannah was obviously able to get the help that she needed, um, and she talked about creating a better culture on campus for students to be more open about mental health. What does that look like? What, how can students create a better campus environment, and how can faculty help with that as well? Yeah, one of the really interesting pieces of research that, that has come out um, recently from Rand Corporation in California shows that students who perceive their campus as being supportive of mental health um, and recognize that's subjective, right? So there's not a particular question of did your campus do this or did your administrator do that? But when students perceive their campus as being supportive of mental health and well-being, students are 20% more likely to reach out for help. And so there is this, this general basic need of um, what can we do that are kind of low-hanging fruit, easy wins that really um, both really help to influence policy and also really reach students. Um, so it's everything from ensuring that your leadership um, is, is behind mental health and to have a, your president at a panel around campus mental health shows students that um, my school cares about me. They, it cares about me as a person in addition to what I'm gonna do uh, academically. Um, one of the things that um, we've been able to develop over the past handful of years at Active Minds is a Healthy Campus Award. And our Healthy Campus Award recognizes institutions that um, treat mental health um, uh, with the same respect and dignity as physical health and really approach um, health issues on campus with a broad lens, um, bringing mental health into the umbrella of overall wellness and recognizing that this is a public health issue. And so um, we're discussing health and wellness um, with the Counseling Center and also with RAs and also with coaches and janitorial staff and um, faculty um, and students and really um, engaging students in the decision-making process, not necessarily just seeing students as the end users, um, but recognizing that when students are involved, they're making better policy decisions, um, they're volunteering for free, and really creating a campus culture that is supportive of these issues uh, in a much more um, financially uh, efficient way, um, and really, and, and it's impacting them as individuals and impacting their peers. Um, and so as universities can take this more public health approach and really recognize this is um, from the top down, from the bottom up, and everybody in between. Um, it creates a, a culture for students to recognize that they do matter. Their well-being does does matter to to their faculty and their administrators and the staff. Um, and then they're more well, more likely to reach out for help if they need it for themselves and friends, um, and more likely to to stay in school um, and to graduate. Yeah, Paula and Michelle, I'm curious from both of you, from a faculty or a leadership standpoint, how are you committed to creating a better campus environment for students when it comes to mental health? Uh, so it's, it's critical. Um, I think that Allison's statement around leadership and the role that leadership plays 
in making sure that health and wellness, uh, and particularly mental health, um, is spoken about, is a priority, and is integrated into all aspects of the college or of the institution, okay. and that it's not siloed only mm -hmm. to the health service, which I think is the old traditional model. And once again, I do think that that requires leadership. Uh, for example, we are really um, rethinking our leadership of health and wellness and raising that from the director of the health service to a dean of health and wellness. And I think, how does that then also intersect with other aspects of the college, with your academic program, with your faculty? Um, I think Allison talked about intersecting with all the places that students interface, whether it be you know, in the dormitories, on the fields, but it's in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. So this is everyone's responsibility. And then I want to end with one piece, which I do think Creating community in the 21st century on our campuses yeah. is, to me, uh, a major priority. We don't call it mental health, but it is. Um, we are living in a very different world than we were 25 years ago. Um, our students have different pressures, and they're also living in a world um, with the internet and other, uh, other ways of communicating that have changed. Um, the way that we create community. So I think we have to take a step back and really rethink what is community currently and take that on, not as a we wish it was one other way, but to say this is our reality, embrace it, and let's figure out what is community today. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely right. And let me just add a few more points because I think creating that campus of the 21st century for students who are facing unique sets of challenges mm -hmm. today. We have to think about preparing a campus that enables students to make the right decisions that will impact their health across the life course. We know this. We know that the campus of today has to not only um, enable students to reach out for services when needed, but we also have to create campuses that take a health and wellness approach from a public health perspective. And that means assuring that students have access to nutritious foods. And that for students who come on campus, perhaps with uh, food allergies, that there are accommodations made so as to reduce any um, increase in risk for eating disorders. We have to ensure that the campuses have safe um, bicycle paths and gyms that have the appropriate security measures in place to encourage continued physical activity. Um, because we know the mood benefits, the, the, you, you cannot underestimate, overestimate the benefits of being physically active during times of stress. The other thing that we have to do in our campus of the 21st century is to assure that the living spaces and the social spaces encourage um, networks of friends to form around social events as well as um, academic events. And I would say the other thing that we're doing here at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and this is important because some of the interventions that you've heard about are really important interventions that have not yet been brought to scale. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things that we do in public health is bring the evidence that drives policy policy that will set in place um, 
the types of structures and approaches needed to ensure health and wellness um, on a population scale. And I think we're in a place where there are wonderful ideas and interventions, approaches being implemented in microcosms of our college campuses. And what you know, I think public health is doing, and I know what our faculty and uh, fellows are engaged in doing is bringing that evidence to the fore where we can have that scale effect. There's still a need for more information to drive, more evidence to drive the creation of new and effective interventions. Can I just make one, yeah. one response? Because I do think, Michelle, I so agree with you. And as we, and you and I have, have talked about this, as we collect the evidence, as we begin to better understand the various strategies that we are undertaking, it is so critical, given the diversity of our student population, yes. that we really understand those data as they apply to different populations of students. Because we know that a one size is not going to fit all. It's good science, and we shouldn't forget that good science and that approach as we think about our campuses. Yeah, that actually prompts another question for me as far as um, barriers to getting treatment and serving the needs of different student, students. Excuse me, Michelle, what are some of the barriers to fixing that culture and fixing mental health around campus? And also, what needs to be done in order to serve all students? Well, that's a really good question, especially as we think about um, what you've heard, uh, the increasing demands in some settings, uh, you know, more than a third increase in demand for services. There's uh, many of our campuses are just unprepared mm -hmm. to meet the demands for service. And I, I applaud our students for reaching out for that service. It's critically important, but we've not caught up. And so we really have to do two things. One is to to look through the public health lens and think about health promotion, uh, to, to find ways to engage those students who are experiencing stress but not the clinically severe forms of um, mental distress and mental health issues, uh, to avoid over-medicalizing um, what some of the um, symptoms of stress are, and uh, allow for triaging the kinds of care talk therapy, uh, the other interventions that you've heard about available. And make sure then that the, the higher level of support for students suffering at the higher end of the spectrum for healthcare needs are able to access the services in a timely way and not experience the long waiting periods that so many of us have been hearing about on some campuses. Yeah, absolutely. And you had mentioned before about you know promoting a general sense of wellness and really making sure that students have access to good nutrition and exercise, um, which can start obviously before college too. So Stephanie, I wanna to talk to you about um, preparing students before they get to school. What can they do um, as far as making sure that they're equipped to handle the challenges of coming to college? So emotional preparedness is the construct that I'm really excited about and, <laughs> and holding on to. And it stems from a study that was conducted a few years ago um, by the Judd Foundation and the Porco uh, Foundation. And the, the Steve Fund actually went back to that research and dissected it by race and ethnicity as well. And this was a fascinating study. Um, 
uh, in the emotional preparedness study, well, that's not the name of the study, that's what I call it, the first year <laughs> experience study, they um, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of first year college students and asked them, you know, what went well in your transition to school, what didn't go well, and so forth. And um, the takeaway, there were several, but one of the most important takeaways was that this thing, this construct called emotional preparedness was actually a stronger predictor of academic success, successful social emotional transition to college than academic preparation. So think about that. And students overwhelmingly said if they had to do it over again, what they would hope is that parents, um, faculty members, um, um, academic advisors would spend more time helping them to be better emotionally prepared than they did focusing on academic preparation for college. So what is this construct that we're all so excited about? Emotional preparedness is broken down into a student's ability to do four things. And, and what I love about this language is that, um, to Michelle's point, it um, it's sort of, it's not, it doesn't stigmatize, further stigmatize, or medicalize. Everyone can sort of op enter this dialogue when you hear these phrases. So emo emotional preparedness speaks to a student's ability to do four things, to be able to take care of oneself on campus, um, to build healthy relationships, to control negative behaviors and feelings, and then to adapt to new environments. And so if we're using that framework to speak with students, regardless of where they fall into those three categories that Paula spoke about at the outset, um, because we're finding that when we use this language, it really opens up the dialogue and makes it easier for students to see themselves in that context. It's much easier for students to think about controlling you know, negative behaviors like, am I drinking too much, than to think about, oh, do I suffer from alcohol dependence, for example. So you see just the slight difference in the phraseology really is a powerful in intervention for opening the dialogue. And even more so when you are approaching students who um, may feel marginalized because of other aspects of their identity, including um, because they may carry a mental health diagnosis, but also because they may have minority sexual orientation status or be students of color and other rep underrepresented minority groups on campus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Steph, or I'm sorry, Allison, what are some simple adjustments that colleges can make as far as making the culture obviously more inclusive for students um, to speak up when they're experiencing issues? Yeah, I think one of the things um, that, that we talked about a little bit before, but I'd also want to kind of reiterate is um, data. We've got to look at data, mm -hmm. um, and the campuses that are that are doing it right and doing it well are experimenting, doing things in, in, a, in a micro, but they're, they're looking at the data around it, everything from the Healthy Mind Study um, to the Center for Collegiate uh, mental health. There are a variety of really great um, data collection agencies and, and projects that student, that campuses can work with. Um, one of the things that we have have continued to um, be impressed by at, at Active Minds is the the need for basic policy changes that can happen on campus that we're finding that are that students are really lobbying for, um, and we're now arming students, student leaders, whether they be Active Minds chapters or student body presidents and everything in between, um, to lobby for the the basic changes that they see that could happen on campus and and have. Um, and have big wins. So everything from 
getting um, the crisis hotline numbers printed on the back of student ID cards to making sure that there is mental health programming in first year orientation. Uh, and when that programming happens, make sure there's a student voice in it, have a student talking about his or her experiences, um, to ensuring that the counseling center is adequately staffed and diverse um, to represent the student body, um, making sure that policies on campus are as supportive of mental health as they are other physical health issues. Um, leave of absence policies are ones that we hear about a lot at Active Minds, where students are um, inadvertently, um, I'll say, uh, punished for having a mental health issue um, because sometimes mental health disorders come out in, um, in, in more physical ways and so people are um, disciplined for the, the behaviors that they ex exhibited. And so ensure that, you're, um, that, that you are treating students with mental health concerns in the same way that you would with a student with a physical health concern. And even those schools that are doing it well, I will say students um, don't always know that, it's, that they have a supportive campus. And so be transparent about your policies. Be proud of them um, when you've made changes because students will often uh, approach a situation out of fear not knowing what the ap the academic repercussions are going to be, or who's going to tell their parent, or who's going to you know when are they going to lose their um, their scholarship for their athletic um, you know for the sport that they're in. Um, so just to be very open about it, I think are, are easy little wins that the campuses can. I think that's so critical. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we hear is it has to be a multi-sectoral, all hands on deck approach. That it has to involve. Um, leaders in academic institutions, college presidents. It has to involve leadership at a public health level. Parents, students, and the communities really all have to be engaged to affect the kinds of change and to promote wellness and mental health yeah. on campuses. You know, I think that uh, the other piece, if we think about our health services themselves, mm -hmm. ensuring that we've got a staff who's truly culturally competent mm -hmm. and competent to work with the diversity of our students and their backgrounds and their histories. Um, and also kind of to, to make sure that we're not siloing mental health from what is traditionally physical health because so many of our students present with um, somatic <laughs> symptoms. Uh, to the, 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 the more traditional health service. And in fact, if there isn't that strong link between the two, we will miss, we will really miss it. So I think, uh, again, making sure that we've got the strongest possible um, services yeah, absolutely. is important. As far as destigmatizing mental health issues in the classroom, what do you all, I mean, I'm curious from anyone on the panel, think about um, what are some ways to do that specifically, like professor to student or just in, you know, in the classroom in general? What would that be like? So, you know, I, I think that, again, um, in the classroom itself, um, you know, there, we teach in the right. classroom. But I think it's really bringing our faculty into an approach that is comprehensive so that they're understanding what our students face. They're supportive and our students are free, for example, if they need an extension or various other things, but that this is an issue. You know, so much of what our students have experienced in some ways has been stigmatized. Think about the negative framework um, and words about things like trigger warnings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is um, an approach to allowing our students who've experienced certain trauma in their lives to better integrate learning. It is 
important for them to be able to embrace what we are teaching. So as opposed to coming at this with a negative attitude, I think we have to understand who our students are and really think about what are the pedagogical strategies that we need to use today that make our curriculum more accessible to our students. And then really begin to think about what are some of the ways through our curriculum we can promote um, health and wellness. I'll give you one small example. Um, you know, most colleges have a required writing course, and it's not the most fun thing. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, for some, for some. <laughs> but, um, but you know, for example, one of our writing courses uh, 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 is focused on health and wellness. And it's become quite popular. And it actually requires more than two, the meeting two times a week. It's meeting two times a week and a lab. And this um, focuses on strategies to improve health and wellness. They dig into the data. They collect their own data. And the lab is focused on techniques of mindfulness and other ways for them to promote health, not only for themselves, but for the students around them. And you know, I've visited the class now twice over the past couple of years. And it's extraordinary to see um, the empowerment that the students have. And again, not just for themselves, but how they feel empowered to make change on the campus. So again, not just one strategy, but multiple that are going to be required. Yeah, definitely. I think the classroom also has to reflect um, the diversity and the breadth of the population that the student body represents. Um, I think that goes a very long way. In fact, I think it's fundamental to creating a classroom that feels inclusive and that allows for the students to really engage with the academic material. And Allison kind of touched on this too, but I'd like to talk just briefly, really quickly about um, treatment and maybe expanding the diversity when it comes to treatment too. What do you guys, um, either Paula or Michelle, um, how can mental health care delivery improve on college campuses? And um, what do you think needs to be done as far as giving that access to students and letting them know that it's available to them? Well, just, you know, I think it's it's much of what we've been talking about, which is, again, not to just silo mm -hmm. the health service uh, along with our counseling services in a way that it is a separate entity that is not connected to part and parcel of the campus. You know, I think our campuses in many ways reflect the healthcare system in the United States, mm -hmm. right? Healthcare and health, healthcare delivery and public health are siloed in our country, and that's very unfortunate. There are many who are working to break that down, but we are a long way from it. Um, I think our college campuses can actually be the forward-looking institutions that really begin to break that down and really provide a very forward-looking model um, for what our country should look like. And let me just add, because that's on the service um, side, um, and your question, I think, can be expanded to include how can we enable, empower our students on campuses to make uh, lifestyle choices that promote wellness across their life course. And I think we've discussed some of these. The, you know, the, the pillars of health really involve paying attention and supporting the students to um, sleep adequately, mm -hmm. to be attentive mm -hmm. about their sleep habits, about their nutritional habits, um, avoiding social isolation, and remaining physically active. Yeah as a preventive health promotion approach. Yeah. And Stephanie, is there a way to, you know, 
create that connection between campuses and programs off campus? How do you all do that and handle that? Well, absolutely. Um, one of the things we talked about earlier is the growing rate of students who are seeking services in community um, through community providers or through hospital systems like ours. So that really begs the question, then who's supporting those students who are now navigating two very complex systems? Their institution of higher education, where hopefully they're attending classes and, and interacting with um, student organizations and living in the residence halls and so forth. But those same students are now increasingly also accessing a mental health care system that is community-based. Really hard. So as those students are navigating between both places, we all need to be both from a community perspective as well as from the college and university perspective increasingly mindful of building bridges between those two systems so that those students now don't get lost in the gaps so they're not forgotten about or fall through the gaps as they're seeking resources increasingly in community um, resources and so that also means that community providers for a long time this the, the, the responsibility has fallen on the shoulders solely of colleges and universities to get out there and figure out where in the community are their students seeking treatment and get to those providers and educate them, for example, about what life is like at Wellesley, for example, and what additional resources a Wellesley student might be able to access if they're in treatment, say, with a mental health care provider. I think we really need to change that paradigm, and this is what we've been trying to do in the past um, decade in McLean's College Mental Health Program, and that is as a community-based providers to take increased responsibility for meeting schools halfway, for saying, well, you know what, we're seeing hundreds of students each year, and they're coming to us from 200 different colleges and universities. So we're not going to sit back and wait for those schools to find that, oh, we have X number of students who are now being treated in the McLean Hospital System. We're gonna reach out to those schools, and we've done this. We've surveyed hundreds of schools, and we've created a database, and we've asked those schools to tell us when we're working with your students. If we have a student, say, from Wellesley or from Harvard on our campus, we need you to tell us how we can provide the most effective support for that student. What, in addition to what we're providing in our community resource, what additional resources do you have on your campus that we can direct that student to that supports, say, their needs as a student who might identi identify as an LGBTQ student or an international student? Um, and so we're building that gap. We're switching the paradigm and saying we're going to take more responsibility for learning mm -hmm. about the campus environment and resources and policies mm -hmm. and practices that we can direct students to so that they aren't caught in the gaps. And Stephanie, that is so right in terms of also thinking you're reaching out and, you know, it takes resources on the college or university's you know, side as well and thinking about we've just hired a, a, a liaison this year to do that, to meet you the halfway. Yeah. Because I think it, it has got to be a partnership and we can no longer think again about our institutions as two separate institutions right. where, you know, our young people can just get lost. That's exactly right. 
Great, thank you all. We're gonna move on to the Q&A portion of our panel. Um, we have special guests in the audience today, Marjorie Malpedi from the Mary Christie Foundation, which is dedicated to the health and wellness of teens and young adults. And then Stephanie Bell Rose, who is the co-founder of the Steve Fund, which is also focused on supporting the health and well-being of young people of color. Um, the fund is also named after Stephanie's son and Harvard graduate, Stephen Rose. So would either of you like to make a comment before we get started? got the mic for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, this was a terrific panel, and um, I took notes the whole time. <laughs> many, many thanks. A um, couple of issues that I'd like to quickly raise. Uh, the Steve Fund does focus on promoting the mental health and emotional well-being of young people of color in those critical transition points from high school mm -hmm. into college through the college and university experience, which does include graduate school, and then into life beyond into work environments, which can often present a set of stressors as well. Um, so we have uh, been working very, very hard with a range of leaders from the higher education community, as well as from the not-for-profit community. We think that the role that nonprofits play in communities, to Stephanie's point, um, very, very critical. Often they are the main pipeline for young people of color from their communities into the education uh, at higher education level. And so we've been partnering with them, providing programs and services that zero in on their emotional preparation for college and for the demands of the workplace. Um, I wanted to mention a study that we conducted with JED, uh, our partner organization, and Nielsen that found some of the very critical factors that affect young people of color um, as they move through the educational experience. Um, students of color are significantly less likely than white students to rate their campus climate as good or excellent, 61 to uh, 79 percent. Students of color are significantly more likely than white students to agree with the statement, I often feel isolated on my campus. And so to, to Paula's comment, 46 to 30 percent. And African-American students are more likely than white students to report feeling overwhelmed, most or all of the time, 51 to 40 percent. Um, agree on this notion of the importance of data. And this data really does show it's a campus climate issue. I think all of the panelists have spoken to that. It's a holistic uh, set of concerns that young people face. Um, our response to that has been to create an equity and mental health framework, uh, again, with our partner, Jed, and to offer that to colleges and universities. We're very excited about how uh, receptive college and university leaders have been to this. It brings together many of the recommendations mm -hmm. that you all have made mm -hmm. today, and our hope is that it makes it easier for these leaders to implement them when they are established in a framework that can be shared across campuses. And finally, the Steve Fund does provide, as I mentioned, programs and services on uh, college and university campuses to back up the implementation of these recommendations. So thank you so very much for this opportunity and, and congratulations on an excellent panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you we're going to go, I think Lisa has some questions from the online audience. I do, I do. Thank you so much. Um, we do have a number of questions coming in on our live chat. So here's one. Hello. 
As you are probably aware, receiving mental health care may preclude individuals from certain careers, government, law enforcement, etc. From what I understand, even the U.S. Public Health Service will not allow individuals to enlist if they have received X hours of therapy or taken mental health medication for X amount of time or ever been in an inpatient mental health care facility. What message does this send to college students or anyone for that matter planning their future who are considering seeking care? Do any of you have any I, thoughts I on that? I can um, a little bit. I don't, I don't know about those specific examples. Um, one of the programs that Active Minds hosts is an Emerging Scholars Fellowship, and we've done it in partnership with the Steve Fund as well as the Scattergood Foundation for many years. And one of our early scholars, we, we provide stipends and mentorship to college-age students to do their own research and creative projects in mental health. And um, one of our very first scholars researched this exact topic mm -hmm. because she was interested in going um, into law school. And um, there, there's a question on the bar exam of, have you ever been admitted to a psychiatric hospital? Mm -hmm. And so she was researching, what happens if I say yes? And what does this mean? Um, and what has evolved over the uh, next handful of years is there are a number of state-based policy changes around what questions are asked on the bar exam. And so what I will say, um, you know, what message does it, does it transmit to college students? It sends the wrong message. Uh, it sends a wrong message because in fact, we'd much rather people get help for their struggles than not. So if you don't get help, are you any more um, mentally well than if you did get help? Um, so I would encourage you as a student uh, who is struggling to get whatever help you need, um, that there are many professions that those questions will never be asked. And even still, when those questions are being asked, there is a new generation of folks who are changing those policies. Yes. Um, and we're going to start kind of um, yeah, profession by profession, and, and we'll pick it out. And you know, I didn't know about those examples. And maybe we'll have an emerging scholar um, do some mm -hmm. research and do some, some work around it. But um, there, we, we talked about it earlier. Mental health has to be treated with the same equity and respect as all health mm -hmm. issues. And um, we're finding those policy um, discrepancies um, all across the board on campuses and beyond. Um, and, and we're also seeing um, that these policies are changing because people are taking it into their own hands and, and making those changes themselves. I want to I wanna just add, add to that um, because I think um, to underscore what Allison just said, it absolutely sends the wrong message. And it's a special concern when you look at the data on help-seeking behavior in college students in general. This is an area that we've been trying to address through policy, practice, and research for years. And yet, overall, the majority, the overwhelming majority of students who meet criteria for mental health and need to access services, about 70% of those students will not seek help for those um, mental health concerns, uh, if you will. And so this is very concerning and it sort of reinforces that message. Another bit of data is that as students progress through their academic careers and get into more specialized areas, for example, medical students who uh, of anyone would know that a mental illness or symptoms of depression, that this is a treatable illness through therapy and medication, it can be addressed. It's one of the most treatable illnesses that exist, but, but even medical students are less likely than undergraduate students to seek treatment. So yes, these policies are penalizing and we need to be mindful of the fact that these barriers are real to our students. And these are some of the things, sometimes it's 
It's based in fact, and sometimes it's just what students believe. It's just the understanding that, you know, if you go there, if you do this, this negative thing can happen. And it's our job, all of our jobs, to be aware of that and to anticipate those barriers and then to place, direct our resources, our policies, our practices so that we overcome those barriers on behalf of students because we know that those barriers are formidable and they are really getting in the way of students seeking treatment when they need it. Well stated. Thank you so much. I'm just gonna ask a few more because um, I know we have little time and um, our audience here can ask you some questions uh, after the event. Um, this is from a viewer in the UK. Uh, how can transitions between educational settings, school, college, university, employment, be facilitated better? How can those settings work in partnership? Well, uh, let me just um, say that one thing that's, uh, that's quite important is for us to recognize that the transition is part of our of our responsibility as educational institutions. Um, that we provide the education, but how our students transition to the next phase of life, whether that be graduate school, whether that be work, um, is an important piece of the work we do. And how we organize that, how we integrate that into the student experience, I think, is very important because one, it's an enormous, enormous source of stress for our students, and two, for us to understand the workplace and the needs of the workplace um, so that we can best prepare our students in the way that fits for our institutions. So I think being very mindful um, and really taking it on as part of the work you know, one of the things we've done is we've created a very robust, what we call career education. And we don't call it the center, it is education as part of the education where we are really working with students from day one where they're assigned a career counselor, not because we're tracking students into one area or the other, but to, for, to be recognized that it's part of the, the education process and it's gonna be part of the transition process. And I think if we are able to do that more robustly, that we decrease significant sources of stress for our students and also understand the workplaces more intimately. Great, thank you. I'll just take one more right now. Uh, we've had a number of questions just about stress among students now. Um, isn't stress an inevitable part of college life? <laughs> Is there actually more stress today that students are experiencing or are they just less equipped to deal with it because of things like helicopter parenting and that sort of thing? I feel like students today are less able to manage situations independently than in the past. I think this is more of a comment, but. I'll jump in and, and yeah. I just want to say I, I actually don't think it's helpful to try to measure whether students are, have less more stress today than previously. I think we understand what the situation is today. How do we embrace it? How do we understand it? And how do we move forward? Understanding the conditions of the world in you know, 2018. So um, I always like to say, here's what we are faced with. How do we move forward and prepare our students for life? Uh, let me bring this home to our campus today. 
Um, Paula mentioned 2018. There are a lot of external stressors, mm -hmm. external to the academic experience that our students are undergoing. Mm -hmm. And I think about the, the kids um, in Parkland, Florida, and the stresses uh, and the fear and the feeling unsafe because of gun violence. And I think about our students here on our campus today after experiencing, witnessing, thinking about, writing about, and talking about the victimization of one of our students that occurred in Cambridge on Saturday. These are external to the academic experience, but they are part of the educational experience. And more than ever before, our students are experiencing these stresses. And we have to not make light of them. They are additional to the regular academic stresses that are so familiar to others of our older cohorts. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, um, this is going to conclude our panel. Before we sign off, I'd just like you all to give one brief takeaway about what you want everyone to know about college students and mental health. Paul, you want to start? Sure. Um, you know, we're preparing our students for life. And in order for our students to make the most of their education, um, they have to be as healthy as they can possibly be, and that is both mentally and physically, emotionally and physically. And therefore, if that's the case, we have to embrace health and wellness, addressing issues of mental health as, it, as, as important as the classroom education that we provide our students. Let me pick up on where Paula left off. We're obligated. This is an obligation for us to ensure that college students, our next generation of leaders, are provided with the resources uh, and are empowered to make um, and practice healthful um, decisions across their life course. Um, I also think we're obligated to bring more funding to generate the evidence that's needed to drive policy in this area. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's going to sound really obvious. Get to know your student body from both a mental health perspective, but also from a social identity and social demographic perspective. And then once you really gather the data to understand who is matriculating on your campus, then make it your job to then align your policies and your resources and your programming uh, and practices to meet the needs of the students who are on your campus today. So that when an incident, for example, happens like the one that Michelle was referring to earlier, every time an incident happens like that that's out in our community, we should all be asking ourselves, who are the students on our campus who are impacted most directly? Which social identities are really reverberating and feeling the hurt and the pain of this thing that happened external to our community? That's what I mean when I say get to know your campus community and be ready to respond to their needs needs today. And I would say see students as partners, mm -hmm. um, equal partners um, in the decision making, in the policy creation, um, in recognizing um, what's going well, what isn't going well, and how to broadcast um, the, the positive and, and improve the negative to their peers. Uh, students are organizing, they are passionate, they are on your campuses right now um, doing this work and interested in doing this work, so support them in that work um, and bring them into uh, all of the conversations that are being had um, around 
uh, best practices and policies and research and whatnot because they will blow you away mm -hmm. uh, by their creativity mm -hmm. and their um, effectiveness and their impact um, and we will really change the way the campus culture uh, is. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us. I encourage you all to tune in to the next forum, which are the pros and cons of self-driving cars on public health. That's May 4th from 12 to 1 p.m. Um, and you can watch that at forumhsph.org. And thank you all again. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.